0: My name is Steve Haefler, and I served here as the lead pastor for 12 years. Before that, we were in Kenya and Zambia for a combined 12 years. And last year, Highlands sent us forward to unreached people groups to Western Asia. And in God's providence and sovereignty, we are unexpectedly now uh, the candidate as lead pastor again. Uh, So I will be preaching the next three weeks and this is where I would like to take us, a, a short three-sermon series on Behold the Man Christ Jesus. And usually you have to wait till the end to get the application, uh, but here is my intent over the next three weeks. As Colossians says, to set our minds on things above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God the Father to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Or as the writer of Hebrews says, to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And as he tells the church at Ephesus, to repent and renew our first love. And our love is for a person. Not an organization or an institution, but for a person. Open your scriptures to John chapter 1, and we will begin in verse 14, a familiar passage. But this is where our meditation will be this morning. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word, you're going to see it in that order, the word, and in your translation, word is capitalized. It is referring to someone. We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to sit down with God and speak face to face with Him? What questions would you ask? I have several I'd like to ask. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to sit down and share a meal with God? Or to observe God as He lived the same kind of life we live, the disappointments, the heartaches, the betrayal, the weariness, the gossip, and the slander. Wouldn't you love to observe Him, how He interacts with all those disappointments of life? to observe how he'd do ministry. What does he value? What was most important? What did ministry look like for God? To see how he relates to different people, the self-righteous religionists or deeply sinful people who are scarred by, marked by, and known by their sin. Like the woman at the well to observe what he thinks is important. Well, these questions and and many others that our curiosity conjures up are all answered in the humanity of Jesus Christ. That God came to earth, took on human flesh, and he lived among us. And it was an observable witness. We could watch him live life for 33 years. The eternal Son of God entered time, entered into human history, entered, if you would, human flesh, and lived among us. Look at verse 14. This is the main point of the paragraph. And the Word became flesh. He became something He wasn't before. And He dwelt among us. He tabernacled. He pitched His tent. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now go back to verse 1 to recall who the Word refers to. In the beginning, the reference to eternity, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word refers to who? God's Son. And I use the term Son because that is the term used in verse 14. Look back at verse verse 14. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son. It's actually an important word. It's monogenes. Only Son. Only begotten Son from the Father. So the Word is the Son of God. And the Word is eternal God. So, by the way, we have already, within the first five minutes, pushed against predominant religions in what they believe about Jesus. We have already pushed against the Jehovah's Witnesses' view that Jesus was the first created and not the eternal Son. Muslims also stumble over the word Son as it relates to God. So right away, John 1 sort of cuts through this underbrush and lets you know that the Word is the Son who is eternal God who created all things. And that's going to be very important for us as we move through the rest of John. We're not going to move through the entire Gospel of John, but for us to understand the Gospel of John. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Through whom? Through the Word. And without Him was not anything made that was made. So He is not only Creator, He is the essence of life. He did not have to have life breathed into His nostrils like Adam. Verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So when you open up to John's account of the gospel as he introduces to you the person and work of Jesus Christ, what does this sound like? In the beginning was, and you're not, and you're not supposed to miss it. It sounds a lot like Genesis chapter one in the beginning matter of fact John also uses similar wording in his smaller letter 1 John the similarities in concept and vocabulary between John 1 and Genesis 1 are unmistakable so scripture is simply assuming god's existence it doesn't really argue for it it states it as a fact in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth in the beginning was the word The Son, the Word, is eternal God. So this is what John is saying. The one I'm about to present to you is eternal God, but incarnate. That's a big theological word that simply means in the flesh. God is going to appear as a human. And that's good because we needed that warning. Because we didn't expect that. And the same God I'm about to present to you in the flesh is the one who appears in the opening pages of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. So, when the heavens and the earth were created, the Word already existed. We believe in the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus, what does a Word do? I love this term. In the beginning was the Word. A word expresses and communicates something. For instance, I can give you two words and you'll know what I mean. And you'll know how to respond. Good morning. And you would say? Two simple words that express and communicate. If I were to say, ume amkaje, you would say? I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, that is Swahili, a single word that means how did you wake up this morning? And you're supposed to say, Mzuri. That's it. And you can go through a series of those. A single word communicates. But you didn't know what the Swahili word meant until it was interpreted. Jesus is interpreting you for you what God is like. And what better person to do that than the Word who is God Himself. So He comes down and He tents among us and He communicates to you, this is God. And the Word was God. He is fully divine. And that's further enforced by the next statement, verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. So the Word fully God, yet a distinct person, was in the closest possible fellowship with the Father, a fellowship you get a glimpse of in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. There is this closeness and a unity that he even desires for us to have with the triune God. He was in the beginning with God. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him. The Word created. The Word, the Son, spoke into existence all things from nothing, which is very interesting, through a Word. And God said, and the Word created. Several truths as we get ready to meet Jesus on the pages of John. The Word, the Son, is God. The Father is also God, but distinct. A distinct person, not another God the son is not the father and he was with the Father and the son is uncreated and eternal and all things were created by him now you just take a breath for a second and let me let me argue that from another text just just listen the apostle Paul writes this in the first chapter of Colossians Jesus is the image of the invisible God. By the way, Christ, the Eternal Son, the Word, was Spirit. Jesus is His earthly name when He took on flesh. So, God, the Triune God, was Eternal Spirit, and that changed in Christ's humiliation when He became a man. And by the way, that's going to matter as we as we end this, when we end the sermon. Well, it matters now, but it'll matter in application. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that the word firstborn there means preeminent, not created. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him, through Christ, and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him, in Christ, in the Word, in the eternal Son, in now Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And what was His mission? and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And I love this phrase, making peace. Not to come and crush us like we already heard. Making peace by the blood of His cross. In essence, John is saying this, the one I'm about to present and introduce to you is the Creator, God Eternal, and His name is Jesus. Distinct from the Father, but eternal God. Uh, Andreas Kosenberger in his commentary states this, and I found this helpful. John's prologue, simply this beginning of the text that we're looking at, has a function similar to the first two chapters of the Old Testament book of Job. There, in Job, the readers are told something neither Job's friends nor even Job himself knew as the story progressed. And what was that? It's sort of Satan approaches God and makes sort of a wager. If you do this, Job had no idea that was going on in the heavens, if you would. There are spiritual realities we know very little about. So what John is doing, he's going to say, you're going to see a man tenting among us and sleeping and eating your food and walking the paths that you wore out years before, but I'm going to tell you this, He's God. Don't miss that. Just like the book of Job. Hey, there's something going on in the spiritual realm that's about to play out that Job doesn't know. He goes on and he says, this piece of information places the readers of the book of Job in the privileged position of omniscience, if you would. They are given the interpretive clue to the unfolding events by the omniscience narrator. Thus, they are able to learn the spiritual lessons God has for them. Similar in John, what none of the characters in John's gospel knew at the outset, neither the Pharisees nor even Jesus' own disciples, was this, that Jesus is the preexistent incarnate word from the Father. John's readers are told at the very beginning of his narrative As in the case of Job, this helps the readers to view the actions of the Gospel's characters in light of the information supplied here. So knowing who this is, look at verse 4. In Him, in the Word, was life. Not through Him. There's There's something about God's essence here that He is life. And the life, look at how it is described was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Life resides in the Word. He does not have life like you and I do. He is life. That is why union with Christ gives you life. And that is why you can be religious and educated and wealthy and you can be a Jewish male pharisee and three chapters later jesus will look at nicodemus and say no you must be born again you must have new life because the life is the light of men so we can be very conservative traditional religious and still be in darkness because the world is filled with religious people who have rejected the light. Light gives life. Light enters the dungeon of moral decay and death and shines life. The terms life and light belong to the spiritual fear. It's fascinating because John really unfolds seven signs. John tells you the purpose of his gospel in the end, in John chapter 20, uh, that... Many other signs Jesus did, but these are written, these seven are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have what? Life in His name. One of those signs of the seven is that Jesus heals a man born... Lined. he's only known darkness and here you have the sign and the miracle that are reversed so in john 8 he actually gives you the discourse the teaching first and he says that i am the light of the world there's argument about that there's pushback not everyone responds appropriately a matter of fact it says his own did not welcome him the world did not acknowledge him But then in John chapter 9, he he proves who he is by healing a man blind from birth. He had only ever known darkness. But when he confronts Jesus for the first time, he has light. These are written that you may believe. Well, back in John chapter 1, a man steps out of the wilderness and enters the scene. He is, I believe, the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is purposely dressed out of fashion for his day. He is wearing camel's hair like an Elijah or an Elisha. He's eating locusts. He has the diet patterns of sort of this remote prophet. And he comes out as the forerunner. He has been prophesied and he is the baptizer and his mission is clear. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about, it's interesting the phrase that he's used, about the light, about the Word that gives life. Why? That all might believe through Him. He, John the Baptist, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. More than 400 years had passed of intertestamental history where there didn't seem to be any prophets and there was no recorded inscripturation, no new revelation, no new books since Malachi. The land bridges between Malachi and the intertestamental period stretched all the way to Luke chapter 1. And what breaks that 400-year intertestamental period is an Old Testament prophet that links back to the major and minor prophetical books. And he starts to proclaim Jesus Christ, the light and the Lamb. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. And what you start to see is this wholesale rejection of who Jesus Christ really is. It is as if they took the light and they covered it. Or as Romans 1 says, they knew the truth, but they suppressed the truth. They held the truth down. And here they try to extinguish the light. And that's why John has to say, but the darkness cannot overwhelm the light. Look at verse 12. John stresses a believing remnant. But to all who did believe Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. To receive Christ is to believe in Christ. It's to accept the claims he makes about himself, who he is. Receive, believe, and become all happen simultaneously. Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not by physical descent from Abraham, not by keeping the law, not by striving and working to gain favor with God. No, we are born of God, born by the Spirit of God, John chapter 3. Now look at verse 14 because this explains one of the most important events in history. The Word, the Eternal Son, became human without ceasing to be God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. How do we know this? And these are the questions we're going to answer in the next seven minutes. And what does it mean for us personally? How do we know that this Word that became flesh is God? How do we know that? And what does it mean for us personally? Verse 14 shows that very God, as the creeds say, became very man. The One who created became one with His creation. Verse 14 and and John chapter 1, if we compare the three great moments of the Incarnation, He who was in the beginning became flesh. He who was God, eternal Spirit, became human. He who was with God, unceasing worship, unhindered fellowship with His Father, tabernacled among us and was rejected. Can you see why this is often referred to as Christ's humiliation? The eternal Word flesh God man creator creature and the word became flesh and dwelt among us he pitched his tent so we could observe him so we could watch him so we could interact with him he did not merely appear out of nowhere temporarily in a vision he lived among us as a human He did not live secretly or appear occasionally. Kind of like Batman or Superman, right? Oh, there He is. Shine the light in the sky. No, He lived, He ate, He breathed, He slept, He suffered. We could observe Him. Men observed the glory of the God-Man as He dwelt among us. And this is the conclusion. Verse 14, the latter part. And we have seen His glory. He's different. There is a unique excellence to Jesus glory as of the only son from the father and what was it about that unique excellence that stood out how would you describe it he was full there was a fullness of grace and truth an observable glory listen to what John says in his smaller letter just listen to this because this is a very important truth as it refers to jesus this is the intro or the prologue of his smaller letter first john that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands he's referring to now the beginning of the introduction of the end times of christ's appearance we've heard him We've seen Him, we've looked upon Him, we've touched Him with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We've observed Him. We've touched Him. We've held His feet. We've talked with Him. It was an extraordinary glory. Look at verse 15. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. Quickly, just through this little part, John the Baptist is saying, This is the Eternal Son. He's reinforcing the very thing John is saying. He then talks about, verse 16, grace upon grace. And, and we've already sang about that this morning. But it is the overwhelming measure of grace that has been given to you in Christ. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. By the way, he's not saying like Moses, boo, and Jesus, yeah, yeah. He's not saying the law is evil and Jesus is good. He's talking about God is communicating in different ways and the law primarily sort of highlighted God's holiness and our need for a Savior. And it could have seemed crushing. So when Jesus appeared, He didn't undo the law, but what He did is He showed forth grace and truth. God's gracious disposition towards you without compromising His truthfulness or His holiness. That in Christ, He was going to crush the Son, Isaiah 53, so that you wouldn't be crushed. In Christ, truthfulness stands because sin would be paid for by a holy sacrifice without having to demand payment from you if you placed faith in In Jesus Christ. Full of grace and truth. Grace and truth most likely recall the Hebrew behind the phrase steadfast love and faithfulness. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, right? The eternal Son, the Word. He has made Him known. Because of Jesus you can understand and know God in a way that was never possible before. That is why the angel in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, said this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That's what John is now highlighting. And we have seen his glory. What does this mean for us? Two things in closing. This is good news because God has provided a way for sinners. He's provided a way for us to be reconciled to Him because there is a gracious disposition of Him. When God appeared in the flesh, try to understand this, He chose to appear as, yes, a human, but He chose to appear not primarily as a rabbi, Thankfully, not merely as a judge, though he could have, or as an executioner to demand payment. When God chose to appear as a human, he chose to appear as a savior, full of grace and truth. The gospel was first preached right after Adam and Eve chose to sin. That there would be the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. And the rest of the Old Testament is sort of the unfolding and tracking of this seed, this Messiah, this promised champion, deliverer, Messiah. And you follow that all the way through Israel's history. And on the pages of the New Testament you have four accounts of the seed of the woman whose name is Jesus who has come to save and to destroy. He has come to save the lost and to destroy the works of the devil and Satan himself. The good news of God becoming flesh is that he had to become flesh in order to what? This is the purpose of the incarnation. He came to die. The eternal God can't die. But a human can. He is fully God and fully man and He took on flesh. This is amazing. This is full of gracious disposition and truthfulness. He took on human flesh to be a sacrifice for you. That's why we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. The, writers, the writer of Hebrews said, said, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, Christ Himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong lifelong slavery. The Incarnation quickly moves to the cross full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. Secondly, salvation, most importantly. But secondly, what does Christ becoming human, the eternal Word becoming flesh, have to do with us then as believers? And I believe this becomes the foundation for a relational church culture of humility. Something that is lacking in most churches. The Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Boy, we've failed in this, haven't we? I've failed in this let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we have failed in that too. In other words, we need to grow as a church as we nurture a culture of genuine humility, which means we have to, to push against the societal culture that wants to conform us into self-centered consumers and self-serving narcissists. And God's Spirit transforms us to become like Christ who humbled Himself. Matter of fact, that's the basis of what Paul is appealing to this church over. That's the basis of humble, servant, relational cultures. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who... Though he was in the form of God, he was fully God. He was eternal God. Did not count equality with God. He was equal with God. A thing to be grasped, meaning clutched onto and not released. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. How dare Jesus' followers throw that truth into the ditch and fail to love others in humility and fail to take an interest in other people's needs and turn a blind eye and say we're Christians and never example the humility that Christ showed when he took on flesh and dwelt among us and was rejected by his own people. He is full of grace and truth. And so Jesus says to us, a new commandment I give to you. This is in John 13. That you love one another just as I have loved you. I typically love people as I love people. Now it's got limits and high walls and fences and razor wire. But that's not the new commandment. The new commandment is not that you love other people like Steve Hafler loves. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Well, what does that look like, Jesus? Humility and death. You also are to love one another that way. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. He says it again two chapters later in John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. What does that look like, Jesus? Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Great theology is practical. Great theology has to wash over our hearts and humble us as we see the eternal Son of God takes on flesh and tabernacles among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son of the father full of grace and truth gracious disposition and truthfulness paul puts it like this second corinthians 4 the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god that is our mission to let them see it again, to let them see it lived out here in in this culture, in this local church, so that all those who have been blinded might for a second pause and know that we are his disciples because we have such a great love for one another. And instead of interacting with one another through the Mosaic law, which is our tendency to interact through the fullness of grace and truth,